0: My name is Trey Brinson. For those of you who do not know me, listen, if you're a guest, thank you so much for being with us this morning. We've been traveling through the story of David in a series called The Broken King, and this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 24. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to First chapter 24, but while you're doing that, I want you to think about this question. What do you do when the path you are on takes you somewhere you did not intend to go? What do you do when the path that you are on takes you somewhere that you did not intend to go? When the direction you're headed takes you somewhere you did not think that you would be? This question is brought to your attention because really this explains in the form of a question the life of King David. David went from being a shepherd boy in the field to becoming the anointed king. The path that David is on is one that leads to a palace. But there were many things that happened along the way that David did not expect. Many things that happened along the way that David did not anticipate. The soon anointed king would immediately go back into the pasture to tend sheep. He went from a place of being praised, he went from a place of being honored, he went from a place of being adored, to a place of humility, and what some might consider shame in the desert. Like my life and your life, King David's life, experienced many highs and many lows. King David's life had many ups and many downs. King David's life went through many ebbs and many flows. Some of you know exactly what that is like. If you explore the life of David, his journey begins by becoming an outcast in his own family. If you remember the story, he was thrown into the middle of a field to tend sheep and forgotten about by his own brothers and even his own dad. You would say that that's a low moment in David's life. Then, through a unique set of circumstances, he becomes the one that God would use to defeat the giant Goliath. And after defeating the giant Goliath, he is heralded and praised and adored as one of the greatest men in his own nation. You would say that that is an up, a high in David's life. King Saul gets jealous at the series of events, and he goes after David. The story is to be told that he throws a spear at David in attempt to pin David to the wall. Again, you would say that that's a low in David's life. Shortly after that event, David would marry one of the king's daughters, landing him a big job, and not only landing him a big job, but landing him in the palace. You would again say that David was experiencing a high. In the first year of that marriage, the Bible tells us that King Saul, his new father-in-law, wants David assassinated. He wants David killed. This results in David leaving his new wife and then fleeing to spare his own life. You would again say that that is a low moment in David's life. So as you study David's life, you see many highs, you see many lows, you see many ebbs and many flows. And this morning, we're going to pick up there in 1 Samuel chapter 24. This continues the low moment in David's life. David, he's hiding in a cave. He has 600 men with him in that cave. And King Saul has now received some intelligence of where David is at. So King Saul is going to go seek after David so that he might kill David. So David's in a cave. Six hundred men are with him. King Saul's on the prowl. He knows exactly the proximity that David is out at. He and all of his men are going to go to kill David. We're going to pick up in verse 2 of 1 Samuel chapter 24. says, then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfold, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. We're going to stop there. Now, this is perhaps one of the most awkward sections of Scripture in all of your Bible. If you're a middle school student, you're going to absolutely love today. And if you're an immature adult, you're going to love today as well. Because what the Bible is telling us is that David and his men, they are hiding in a cave. And the Bible tells us that Saul arrives in proximity to where he believes David and his men are. He's seeking him so that he might kill him. And the Bible tells us that Saul, before he finds David, he has to go inside of a cave and he has to relieve himself. Saul is a man, and me, men, pee, standing up. Why do I tell you that? Because that is significant. I don't tell you that to be comical. I don't tell you that to get a laugh. I tell you that because the author of this section of Scripture wants you to understand what's happening. The Hebrew words here for relieves himself means he's covering his feet. And if men, pee, standing up, what does it mean that he's covering his feet? Well, he's taking a deuce like he's doing number two, all right? That's what's happening here. And that is significance. Why is this significant? We usually don't talk about potty stuff behind the pulpit, right? But it's significant because the author wants you to understand that, that, David, that King Saul is in a position of vulnerability. That as he walks into this cave, and he pops a squat, that now his, 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 his garments are around his ankles, that he can't leave, he can't run, he can't flee. He's completely vulnerable. And this is David's chance. This is David's chance to go after him. It says in verse 4, The men of David started to whisper to one another, Here is the day in which the Lord has made. David Saul literally is in the cave that we are in right now. I mean, this is an act of wonder that Saul would walk into this cave and he would squat down right there and take out the We Are Henry magazine. And now's our chance. This is our moment. We can kill him, the Bible says. Behold, I'll give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as you seem good to you. These men are stunned. I mean, you'd be stunned too if you were hiding for your life in the middle of a cave, and just by coincidence, just by happenstance, just by God's sovereign plan, more or less, Saul, the guy who's trying to kill you, comes into that cave, starts to use the bathroom, he can't see you in the dark, and this is the moment that you can take Saul's life. What are the odds that this would be happening? So David's men here, they're in disbelief. This is their moment. This is David's moment. This is an opportunity for David to get revenge. If anyone should have wanted revenge at this moment, certainly it's King David, right? I mean, don't you remember the spear that was thrown at you to try to pin you to the wall? Don't you remember all the ups and downs that King Saul has put you through? This is David's moment for revenge. Saul is vulnerable This is David's chance to kill him. So what does David do? The Bible says, then David arose. In the Hebrew, this means David took decisive action. In other words, David took his dagger, and David took his knife, and he stood up, and he started to pursue Saul. This was it. This was David's chance to put an end to his greatest problem, this king. So David has his mind made up, he's walking to Saul, and as he approaches Saul, something begins to turn in his spirit. All of a sudden, he starts to have a bit of a gut check. Is this what I'm supposed to be doing? The Spirit of God starts speaking really loud in the life of David. He approaches King Saul, and as this begins to turn, his spirit begins to turn, he thinks, I can't do this. If I were to put a dagger in the heart of King Saul, if I were to put a dagger even the back of King Saul, that would be referred to as murder. Even if God put Saul in this position, David says, I can't carry through with this evil act. This is what we can learn from this church family. It is easy to confuse what we want with what God wills you hear that? In my life and in your life, it is easy for you and I to confuse what we might want for what God might will. It's easy to complicate circumstances with the will of God. The the easy thing in this moment for David to do is to kill Saul. But that's not necessarily what God willed for David to do. Think about it. Think about your life. How do you know if the decisions that you are making are in line with the will of God? How do you know? How do you know that the decisions that you are making are in line with the will of God? Some of you would say, well, it just feels like the right thing to do. Maybe you would say, well, I just have a piece about it. Maybe you might even say, well, it makes me happy. Do you realize that all three of those answers are purely subjective? That all three of those answers and the many more that are just like it are all rooted and based in feeling? Even the one that says, well, I have a piece about it. It's the way you feel you have a piece about it. I'm happy. It's based on happenstance. You're happy about it. If David did what he felt was right... The knife would be through the heart of King Saul. See, if how we feel determines the decisions that we make, this is what will lead to wives leaving husbands and husbands leaving wives. If how we feel determines the decisions that we make, this will lead to dads walking out on their kids. It will lead to single people who are tired of being alone dating single people who don't walk with God. That's what it leads to. It leads to running up the bill on our credit card and being in financial debt if we just do what feels right to us. In other words, our feelings are not a good guide to the will of God. Your feelings aren't a good guide to the will of God. My feelings aren't a good guide to the will of God. I had a conversation even this week that I, that I need to let you know about. I mean, it, it's, it's literally in line with this, and I was thinking about this this week. When, when someone vows to do something and you commit to do something and your feelings change about it, you have to make sure that your feelings are in line with God's word. Let me say it like this. The only dependable guide to God's will is God's word. If you want to know if the decisions that you are making are in line with God, then all you have to do is turn to the word and make sure the word is speaking into your life and your life is changing and transforming and and adjusting based on what the word of God says. It's not about your passions. It's not about your circumstances. It's not about the peace. It's not about the happiness. It's not about any of that. It's truly about God's word being fulfilled in your life, those things can easily lead you to rationalize and justify the things that you believe are right in the eyes of God, when in all actuality, they're not maybe right in the eyes of God. We must know God's word and we must let God's word rule over our lives. In fact, we must let God's word rule over our feelings. So, in a conversation I had this week, someone was telling me about how they felt and the peace that they had about a decision that they're making, and I asked, Well, what did God lead you to in Scripture to make you think that? And the response was, well, there was no real Scripture thing that I can conclude to. Church family, that's where where it gets dangerous. It gets dangerous because we're not consulting the, the God of the Word through the Word of God. And we're dependent on a feeling rather than His Word. So David, with his knife in hand, he begins to take action against Saul. The Spirit of God moves in David's life. And the Bible tells us that David stops. He doesn't carry through with his actions. When Saul leans over, maybe he's grabbing some paper or a leaf or whatever he's doing. David, the Bible says, stealthily cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. I mean, this is fascinating. David doesn't even kill Saul. All he does is messes up his Johnny O's shirt, right? And he cuts off a little piece of it and he holds it up. And David, the Bible tells us, felt guilty about even doing that. So the men that are with David certainly don't understand what's going on here. Why wouldn't David kill him? Why would David feel bad for messing up Saul's shirt? It says in verse 6, and he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. You see what David's saying? David understood that Saul is God's appointed king. He also understood that these are God's appointed circumstances. That David refused, in other words, to take matters into his own hands. I love how one of my friends said it. He said it like this. I can't achieve the purposes of God by simultaneously breaking the commands of God. And that would have been very easy for David to do. David could have thought, man, I'm supposed to be the next one on the throne. God's the one who brought him into the, into the, to the, uh, the whatever it's called, the cave here. So easily David could have thought, well, I'll just put an end to it, kill him, I'll be on the throne, I'll be the king, and it will all be out working according to God's plan. Easy to justify, easy to rationalize. So he could have justified killing him. But David knew you never achieve the purposes of God by breaking the commands of God. So David wasn't interested, church family, in an easy life. That would have been the easy thing to do. But he wasn't interested in an easy life. See, David was interested in a faithful life. And the same thing ought to be true of us. You and I in our daily living shouldn't be looking for what's easy and what's convenient. We should be looking for what is faithful according to God's word. So can I, so can I encourage you just really quick this morning? I'm going to encourage you. Can I encourage you? We good? Let me encourage you with this. Be careful not to sacrifice faithfulness on the altar of convenience. Do you hear that? Be careful in your life not to sacrifice faithfulness on the altar of convenience. You do realize that in the past three years, more people have sacrificed their faithfulness to God and his people on the altar of convenience than probably ever before. Online church attendance is at an all-time high. Why? Because faithfulness has been sacrificed for convenience. We don't want to be faithful to God and we don't want to be faithful to his people. All we want is to be conveniently pleased and our convenience is to be met. And it just makes much more sense if I just stay at home rather than go be with the people of God. What problem is that? What about inflation? Inflation comes up. And all of a sudden, we take steps backwards in our faithful giving. Why? Because it's not convenient. It doesn't feel good. So we sacrifice what God has told us to do, our faithfulness, on the altar of convenience. Let's not do that as a church family. Verse 7, it says, So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So the Bible's telling us that Saul finishes his business here. He kicks some sand on it, whatever they do. And he walks out of the cave. He exits the cave. And the Bible says he gets about 100 yards away from the cave. And that David comes out of the cave and yells, shouts at King Saul. This is what he says. Verse 8. My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. Again, David. Humble, humble guy. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. I could have killed you today, he says, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand out against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe that's in my hand? He starts holding that piece of the robe up so that Saul can see it. And he says, I could have killed you. You know this. And see, there's no wrong or no treason in my hands because I spared you your life. I've not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. In other words, what God does with you is between you and God. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm going to be faithful and I'm not going to kill you. Then verse 13 says, As the Proverbs of the ancient says, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. What is he saying there? David is saying, Out of the wicked comes wickedness. It's just like James says, Out of an overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Out of the wicked comes wickedness. And James or, and Paul, or David basically is saying here, two wrongs don't make a right. Just because wickedness is coming out of the heart of a wicked king, Saul, doesn't mean that I respond to wickedness with wickedness of my own. I'm not going to respond to you with wickedness. Why? Because I'm going to be faithful to God. And then David makes this plea in verse 14. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. So we started our time together today by asking this question. What do you do when the path that you are on takes you to a place that you did not intend to go? What do you do when the path that you are on takes you to a place that you did not intend to go? In these moments, when we are headed in one direction, and we arrive at a direction other than the direction that we thought we were headed, there are typically two things that that we can see that are controlling our lives. Either we are controlling our lives, or God is controlling our lives. This reality helps us discover who is in final control. Is it us, or is it God? So what I want to do this morning is I want to show you the response of what it looks like when you and I are in control of our lives and our circumstances and where we're headed. And then I want to show you what happens when we trust that God is in control of our life, our circumstances, and where we are headed. So let's answer the first question first. What does it look like when we are in control? What does it look like when you are in control? First, we seek revenge. We seek revenge. For many of us, when something harms us, when someone aggravates us, when somebody betrays us, what do we wanna do? We want to settle the score, right? We want to seek revenge. A friend hurts us, and what do we do to that friend? Well, we insult them. A coworker uh, mistreats us. What do we do to that coworker? We begin to subtly try to tarnish that coworker's character. A spouse upsets us. What do we do? We shrug it off, and then we seek revenge. You and I, if we are in control of our individual lives, when someone hurts us, when some harm is inflicted against us, our natural response is to seek revenge. Some of you, you're here today, and you know exactly what this is like You are seeking revenge against someone who has hurt you. And the Lord wants you to know today this very simple statement. Let it go. Let it go. Put it in the hands of God and let God deal with that person. And let God deal with you. The natural response to betrayal, hurt, aggravation is that we seek revenge. There's a second thing we do when we are in control. Secondly, not only do we seek revenge, but we seek false pleasures. We seek false pleasures. When life isn't going pleasantly for us, we seek pleasure from someone or something instead of God. You were designed for your fulfillment and satisfaction to be given to you by God and God alone. Not the things of this world, not the people of this world. Does God use sometimes the things of this world to satisfy us? Sure. Does God use sometimes people in this world to satisfy us? Sure. But He never replaces Himself with those things or those people. Our satisfaction, our final and ultimate fulfillment, should come from God and God alone. We get down and we get depressed, so we want pleasure. Where do we go? We go to pills, we go to a bottle, we go to a hobby, we get lonely. Where do we go? We go to a relationship. This is why somebody, some of us are in just a cycle of relationships. In fact, you, you, you know those people. I've never known that person, and he's never been in a relationship. He, he, he fills that gap, that void, with something, and it's usually a relationship. Moms, they get bored. Where do they go? Target, right? That's what they do. Fill that void. So we seek false pleasures in the things of this world when we are in control of our lives instead of trusting and obeying that the Lord is doing something in and through us. So we seek revenge, we seek false pleasures. It's a third one. Not only do we do that, but when we are in control, we compromise. We compromise. I'm tired of being single, so I'll date this guy or that girl knowingly that I would never marry them. I'm tired of being alone, so I'll just move in with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. We compromise. Paul says we do the things we know we ought not do, and we don't do the things we know we ought to do. Our marriage maybe is unfulfilling, and you feel like you deserve better, so what do you do? You look to the Internet. You look to a coworker. Look outside the borders and the boundaries that God has given you to find satisfaction and fulfillment elsewhere. We compromise. When we are in control, we seek revenge. We also compromise. And fourth, we get ahead of God. When we are in control, we even get ahead of God. Instead of patiently waiting to do the things the way that God wants them to be done, like David did here, we get ahead of God. We try to rush God. We don't wait on him. We don't stay even side by side with him. We, we move forward without him. Some of us, this might mean that God wants to sanctify you through the pressures of your job. And instead of letting God sanctify you through the pressures of your job, you just quit. And the same lesson that God wanted to teach you through that situation, you're going to have to learn somewhere. So the, the lesson's coming again just a different location. Some of us, we weren't going to say this, but I think I think you, I hope you know my heart here. My heart is to help you and to help shape you through God's word. But I, I was talking to one of our pastors about some of our seniors are going to a senior trip on Monday through Thursday. Phenomenal opportunity for them to go to Gatlinburg, get away, grow together in godliness, and just grow in their relationships with the Lord. And David Jeremiah was going to be speaking at this event. And what David Jeremiah has some spinal issues going on and he's, he's had to cancel his speaking engagement at this event. So people backed out on that because David Jeremiah wasn't going. I want to challenge you to think about why you would do that. Like, Why would we do that? Were we going for David Jeremiah or were we going because we wanted to grow closer to God? What if what God wanted to say to you and share with you David Jeremiah wasn't going to say to you, so he wanted to use somebody else to say it. See, God is in process of working and shaping your life into the image of his son. Who are you to control how he does that? He wanted you there, but by you not being there, he's going to teach you the same lesson. It just might be a different way and maybe sometimes a more less pleasant way. So we get ahead of God. That's what it looks like when we are in control of our lives. Now what I want to do is I want to talk about what it looks like when God is in control of our lives. What does that look like when he is in control? Well, it really boils down to one thing. It boils down to when God is in control, we trust and we wait on him. Anybody had to wait on God? It is not fun, is it? We don't like to wait on anything, much less heavenly things. Waiting on God is one of the most important skills, though, in the life of a believer. I want you to turn with me real quick to Psalm chapter 57. Psalm chapter 57. David wrote this very psalm while he was in the cave. This is the beauty of the Bible. He writes this while he's in the cave, and this is what he says in verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. So he's pleading with God to help him out. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. He's pleading with God, help me out. For in you, my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms, and may I add, even the smells of destruction pass by. I cry out to the most high God, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame who, those who tremble, trample on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. This is a picture into the heart of King David. This is a picture of what your life and my life should look like when we trust and we wait on God. So what does trusting and waiting on God look, look like? There's four things. This is what trusting and waiting on God looks like. Four things. First, When you trust and you wait on God, you trust the sovereignty of God. You trust his character. That's what I'm getting at there. That God is sovereign, and he is in control, and he's not caught off guard. And he knew these things before they ever transpired. He says in verse 2, I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purposes for me. He is a sovereign God. See, in the cave, David is trusting in God's sovereignty. He says, God will fulfill his purposes in me. In other words, I don't have to compromise to get to where I want to be or even where I'm supposed to be. I just need to trust him. I just need to trust his timing. David doesn't now know how God's going to do this. He has no clue how he's going to ascend and rise to the throne. But what he does know is that God will do it because God's promised that he's going to do it. So David was saying, I need to step back and let God just orchestrate the events the way that he so chooses. So this prayer in Psalm chapter 57 is a prayer of humble pleading, but it's also a prayer of quiet trust. David doesn't say, God, you're sovereign, so it's whatever. That's how some of us approach God's sovereignty. That's not David's way of approaching it. He says, God, please intervene. Please change the situation. I trust that you can. But I also trust that you will. And what does David do? After praying, he steps back and he lets God move. When you and I trust God, we trust his sovereignty as well. The second thing, when God is in control, not only do we trust in his sovereignty, but secondly, you have the confidence, you have confidence in his steadfast love. So you have confidence in the steadfast love of God. Verse three: He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. David is confident in the steadfast love of God. David knows that this this too is a part of God's character. That the God who is steadfast in his love is the same yesterday, today, and even forever. He knows that God is doing what God is doing because of his loving plan in David's life. Man, it's so easy sometimes for me in the midst of my circumstances and situation to forget that God is indeed a God of love. Sometimes the things that God's doing around me and even in me, they don't seem very loving, do they? But David anchored the reality of his life into the fact that God is not going to change. He had confidence in the steadfast love of God. You and I, we struggle at times to trust God. We trust, or or, or to trust him. We even struggle at times to trust that he loves us. Some of us think that we are in the struggles we are in because God isn't involved. You ever been there? Man, I'm walking through what I'm walking through because God is absent. He's not active. He's not involved. He's, He's some distant God that's unrelatable to his people. Some of us even say that the reason we're walking through some of the things that we're walking through is because God is trying to punish us for some sin of our past you do understand that both of those things are anti-gospel. Neither of those things line up to scripture. The gospel does something for you. The gospel doesn't do something against you. It's not Jesus punishing you for something that you've done wrong, it's Jesus being punished for the wrong that you've already done. So, the, so, the, so your punishment was put on Christ, it's not put on you, it's him suffering in your place. And when we embrace that gospel message, it gives us the confidence that we need to know that He will indeed respond to us with steadfast love. Here's my question Do you trust God's steadfast love today? I don't know what you're walking through, what situation you're walking through, but do you trust God's steadfast love? And maybe you're sitting here today and you're thinking, well, Trey, you don't know my situation. And you're right, I don't. But listen to David in verse 4 My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beast, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. What does this mean? David's saying, Saul is out to kill me. Saul is out to devour me. Every night, this is what's in my dreams, and my dreams are haunting me. I have pictures of lions literally trying to take my life away and, and, and scuffle me up. This is David's life. He's These hungry lions are trying to devour him. You know, ma'am, sir, I I think David understands your struggle this morning. I might not, but I I think David gets it. David understands. You you might have a bitter spouse a friend's betrayal, overlooked by your boss, maybe even overlooked by someone you love. David gets it. He understands. And the beauty of this text is not only does David understand, but so does God. He gets it too. Do we have confidence in the steadfast love of God? The third thing when he's in control is you are selfless in your relationships with God. When God is in control, you become selfless in your relationships with him. It says in verse 5 Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. In the midst of David's pain and in the midst of David's trouble, he's focused on God getting glory and God being exalted. What a beautiful text of scripture. His primary prayer isn't that he would be spared. His primary prayer isn't that life would get easier for him. His primary prayer is that through these circumstances and situation that God is leading him through, that God would be exalted as a result of them. What about us? What is it that we pray in our moments of struggle When we walk through things that we would not have brought upon ourselves, or we walk through things that are tough and we can't figure them out, is that what we ask God for? Lord, whatever you bring on me, so be it, as long as you're exalted. When God is in control, you're selfless in your relationship with God. And then fourth and finally, when God is in control, you're satisfied and you're satisfied in God alone. It says in verse 7, my heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. I love that. My heart is steadfast, oh God. My heart is steadfast. Remember what David is walking through here. He's in a cave, hiding because Saul wants him dead. My heart is steadfast, oh God. My heart is steadfast. And he adds this it's not parenthetically said, it's matter of factly said. He says, I will sing and I will make melody. Why do I think that's fascinating? Because I would say, my heart is steadfast, oh God, my heart is steadfast. I'm going to complain, and I'm going to complain until you respond. And if you don't respond, when I expect you to respond, I'm going to get ticked off, and I'm going to hold my fist in your face, oh God, until you do what I want you to do. Oh, my heart's singing. It's just not a good song. And for some of you, your heart is singing too. But it's not a heavenly song. Notice this. This is the second time that David uses the word steadfast. The first time David uses the word steadfast, he's referring to God's feelings towards him. This time, he uses the word steadfast about his commitment to God. What's your point? David can be steadfast towards God because David knows that God is steadfast towards him. that should have hit us like a ton of bricks. That did not have the gravity or the weight that I thought. It's easier for me to be faithful to a God who I know is going to always be faithful to me. It's easy for me to persevere through my trials and hardships when I know that God's never gonna leave me through those trials and hardships. He's always going to walk right through those things with me. See, at the heart of our obedience is confidence in God's steadfast love. When we lose sight of God's love for us, that's when we are tempted to seek revenge or compromise or fall prey to sin. Let me say it this way. If God isn't good to you, if you don't look at God and say, man, that is a good, good God, then you'll step outside of God to find goodness. And that's what some of us are guilty of this morning, you look at God and your situation and your circumstance and you take a step back and you say, that doesn't look like a good and loving God. So you go outside of God to find something that's good and find something that's loving. And that is when your life begins on this steady spiral spiral rope road to destruction. You find yourself leaving the goodness of God rather than clinging to the goodness of God. And God alone was made and created, not created, but God alone created you for him to be the only one who could satisfy you. When you're tempted to do things your own way, you're failing at one of four things. Either you aren't trusting the sovereignty of God, you aren't confident in the steadfast love of God, or you aren't selfless in your relationship with God. Or you aren't satisfied in God alone. Where are you in this story? You know, we've been saying this all throughout our time together, but when we look at this text of Scripture, David is not us, and it's easy for us to put our shoe, our, our feet, our people, our place. Yes. Put ourselves in the, the feet of David here. But David's not us. When you look at this text, you are Saul. Jesus is David. See, we like Saul have made life all about us. We like Saul have stepped into the brink of our own pride and destruction. We don't fully trust God, we don't even trust God's plan if we're honest. We fight to be in control of our own individual lives. What God wants to do and how God wants to do it doesn't always resonate well with us. So we try to take matters into our own hands. We live in jealousy. We live in envy. We live in lust. We live in things that are outside the borders of God's safe jurisdiction. We are like Saul. But David didn't kill Saul, did he? Even when he had a perfect opportunity and chance to put all of his plans, all of his plans and all of his pain and all of his hiding in the past, he didn't do it. What did David do? David showed Saul grace. You are Saul. Jesus is David. Like David, Jesus doesn't kill us even when he had the right to do so, even when he could have already done it. He didn't do it. Why? Because he is a God of grace. And he is showing you and I that even in the agony and the pain that we create because of our own sin, that he and he alone is the only remedy to it. Ma'am, sir, you can continue to try everything under the sun to to offer and provide the fulfillment and satisfaction that your heart longs for. But it will not fulfill you. It will not satisfy you. Why? Because God is the only one who can fill that void. And this text is a humble plea to you to turn to Jesus. The same God who can look at your iniquity and your pain and your arrogance and your pride and forgive it and offer grace to you instead is the one saying, turn to me and I'll lead you and I'll guide you through every pain and every situation and every circumstance that you'll ever face here on this earth. Because I desire friendship with you, family with you, and I'm a God who sticks closer than any brother. So what do you do when the path you're on takes you somewhere you didn't plan to go? Do you handle things the way that you want to handle them? Or do you handle them the way that God wants them to be handled?